All right, then. Let's turn our Bibles, turn open our Bibles to Acts chapter 3. And if you're wondering, I'm hopeful that maybe next summer we can dive in right here at uh, Acts 3 verse 14 or wherever we leave off today and continue on our march through the book of Acts. So um, if you think that's a great idea, give us a little feedback on your card. We'd love to hear from you whether or not you'd like to see a peek into what's next in the book of Acts. Grab your sermon outline. I want you to imagine Big Brother, the TV show. Everybody here familiar with this show, Big Brother? They gather diverse, various people from different backgrounds into a house. I want you to imagine Big Brother 50 years ago on a raft in the middle of the ocean. Can you picture that? I'll actually give you a picture of it. Here it is. It, it was an actual experiment run in 1973. This boat is called the Akali. You can kind of see it right there. And it was uh, a Mexican psychologist and researcher. He was testing the hypothesis of uh, a gal, uh, Hannah uh, Arendt, who was a philosopher, who said, people, you put people together and they're going to fight. It's just how it is. And in fact, think about 1973, the 60s and 70s are the height of the Cold War. And Hannah, Hannah Arendt's uh, philosophy and, and what she observed was completely based in the events of why can't we all just get along in this world? And so this was her thing. She wrote a book about it. It became a very popular theory. There is no way for people to get along in this world. It's just not going to happen. So this researcher, uh, Santiago Genovese, said, well, let's test that. Let's test that statement. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to pull together random people, different cultures, and I'm going to stick them on this boat. And they're going to be together sailing from the Canary Islands across to Mexico. And we'll see what happens. You want to be on that boat? Do you want to be on that boat in 1973, the, uh, the height of the Cold War, when the prevailing theory is there's no way for people to get along when you put them together in a group? And it was interesting what happened. Santiago, Santiago Genovese, the researcher himself, was on the boat. And what began to happen to the people, you can show the next picture, as they ate together, as they slept on this little platform, and Genovese kept reorganizing. He would, on different nights, he would say, all right, here are the sleeping arrangements for tonight. You're next to this, and you're next to that. And, and he kept toying and playing with it. But he noticed that pretty soon they were kind of bonding. And it wasn't perfect by any means, but they, they were kind of committed to this idea. What if we just try to be both honest and kind with one another? Like, like we sometimes say that Jesus is full of grace and truth, right? What would happen to a group of people if you just 
And, and these are secular people, not religious people. But what if they kind of pick up on this principle that if we live together, being gracious toward one another, but also being honest with one another, as Paul writes in Ephesians 4, speaking the truth in love, we will all grow up into him who is the head. What would happen? Well, what happened was they actually got along far better than Hannah Arendt had thought. That Santiago, the researcher who set up the experience, thought. So you know what he did? He started doing little things to sabotage their unity and their teamwork. Behind the scenes, he started like a, a little whisper campaign about one another and what they were saying, gossiping about people. He, uh, at one point, replaced the, the only trained person on the boat who was the captain of the boat with himself. I'll be in charge now. Thank you very much. And he kept doing things. At another point, he came around a corner with a bucket before the person could see him and just splashed water in their face randomly, trying to provoke dissension. And I was reading this story. I thought, that guy? He's kind of a little bit like Satan, isn't he? Because you know what that raft reminded me of? A group of random people brought together around a, a voyage, a pilgrimage, made me think of the church, made me think of Amazing Love Church. The fact that we have the name Amazing Love and that we've kind of all come together around this idea that we want to celebrate and honor and worship God for His amazing love for us, but then we want to be filled with that love to the point of overflowing so that we're showing amazing love to one another too. We kind of bought into the same concepts that these guys did. And I, I think it's worth looking to see what happens when people speak the truth in love, are full of grace and truth as Jesus was. What, what actually begins to happen? Well, we do have a picture of this in the Bible, you know. It's the book of Acts. The first church where all kinds of random people, remember where we talked about the day of Pentecost, how many people were added to the church in a single day? 3,000 people, do you think all of those people were like close family members and all knew one another and just naturally fell together and said, hey, we're all friends now. Let's all get along. No doubt there were some unique personalities. No doubt there were some differences of opinion. But it's amazing to see this picture of what's going on led by the apostles. And today what we're going to see is what happens when the apostles step their foot forward first in love, not just with church members, but also with community members they encounter. One of the passengers on the ship many years later in 2019 was asked about her experience in this experiment. And she talks about this guy who's out, you know, he's a saboteur like Satan, trying to provoke anger and dissension all the time. And, and she says, you know, we, we actually, as a crew, had the answer. Isn't love the answer to violence? We had it on the raft. 
meaning love. Genevis, the, the uh, researcher, was so focused on the violence and conflict, he was actually went into this experiment thinking he needed to prove Hannah Arendt's philosophical assertion that the world is always going to end up in violence. But the answer was right in his hands. Genevis could have clearly seen what was happening. What was happening was love's the answer. And love is still the answer. Only what I'm going to tell you is, as much as human love, which I sent out in the Friday email a little definition that Human love is a feeling and affection toward one another. What we're going to be talking about today is far deeper than that. We're not going to be talking about natural love, human love per se. We're going to be talking about supernatural love. The kind of love that God first shows toward us, willing to sacrifice his one and only son for us, supernatural love the love that we can only do if we have the Holy Spirit living in our hearts and in our minds and are powered up supernaturally by Him, by God Himself. That's what we're going to be talking about. And what I, what I want to show you is, in some ways, the church is like that boat, and we have to constantly be vigilant. George Barn is a researcher, and he did some research, and we're going to put a graph up here. This was his conclusion after his research among the many rafts that are Christian churches. And this vertical line is, are we Christ-like or more like the Pharisees? And this line represents our actions. Are we more Christ-like in our actions or more Pharisaical in our actions? This one is attitudes, the horizontal one. Are we more Pharisaical in our actions or more Christ-like in our actions? You see that big 51% bubble? See where, which quadrant that lies in, sadly? As Christians analyzed themselves, they came to the conclusion, over half of them, that I think we belong down here, overly pharisaical in both our actions and our attitudes. And where we want to be is Christ-like in both our actions and our attitudes. And that would be in this quadrant. And only 14% said that's where we're at. So, brothers and sisters, let me challenge you. We've got some work to do. We've got some work to do because even we as Christians across this country have said, we're here, but we need to be here. And God's got some work to do in our hearts and in our minds. So here's what I want you to write down first. A person that worships God because of his sacrificial love will be a person that loves sacrificially. All right, let's take a look at the very first thing that happens. Chapter 3, verse 1 says, One day Peter and John were going up to the temple at the time of prayer at 3 in the afternoon. Now I'm just going to deal with that one verse because it's so critical, the context that it's giving you and me. 
What are these two apostles doing? They're finding time to worship God as they always have. What was the temple? It was God's house. Where did people go to publicly worship God? Of course, just like today, you can privately worship God anytime, anywhere, in your car, at home, sitting on your back patio. You can worship God anytime, anyhow, but... We also want to set aside time, as Peter and John did, to do it in God's house. And they're going there, it says, at 3 in the afternoon. It might so sound like that's just a time note, but it's not. It's far deeper than that. 3 in the afternoon was the time of the evening sacrifice. The time when every day a sacrifice was made. And why was that sacrifice made? Well, it was actually, in Old Testament times, prophetical. The, when when the, the ox or the, the cattle or the sheep were sacrificed, it was to indicate one day a Messiah will come, a Savior from sin. And we want to be reminded of this daily in this evening sacrifice that God in love, in immense supernatural love, is going to send His only Son to be that sacrifice for us. So they were going up and now, interestingly, this is after Jesus has made that sacrifice, and they're, they're going to worship God at the time of evening sacrifice. Maybe part of it was practical. They knew that a lot of people would come into the temple for that sacrifice. Maybe part of it was, we still need the reminder, like you and I. We talk about it every week. Have you ever noticed that? You may wonder, why, why does Pastor Jeff, why does Pastor Dustin talk about the gospel every week? Why, why do we sing songs every week for God so loved the world? Like, how does Courtney pick those songs? Can we talk about something else? And of course, we do talk about a few other things now and then, but it always comes back to the cross and the empty tomb and the sacrifice that Jesus has made for us because we need to know constantly and be reminded how much God loves us. So that's what these two are doing. And as they do it, you know, it's, it's kind of interesting. Sociologists say that there are four universal human desires. I'm going to put those up. Four universal human social desires, how we get along on the raft. Every human desires to be noticed and acknowledged. Have you ever noticed that? That that if someone walks right past you and they don't even turn their eyes to you and they keep on booking it past you, especially on this raft here at church, if that continues to happen, what's the question that's going to pop into your mind? Well, I won't speak for you. What pops into my mind is, I wonder if we're okay, that person and me. I wonder if I've done or said something to upset them because they don't seem to acknowledge me or say hello to me or even seem to acknowledge that I'm around. I think most human beings are like that, and sociologists would say so. In, in Zambia, the, the greeting for the morning is Damubona, which means I see you. It's every greeting is a response to this. Every human being wants to be accepted. We, we like to know 
we're accepted as we are. We are sinners, but are we welcome here? Or are the attitudes of the people on this raft so pharisaical, as we just talked about, that if you are open and honest and transparent about your sins, you'll be pushed away? Every human desires to belong, and every human desires to be loved. Aren't those interesting? Now, go back. In light of those four, just study those, and we're going to go back. One day, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the time of prayer at three in the afternoon, right? And they see somebody, right? And so, what are they going to do with this man? Now, a man who was lame from birth was being carried to the temple gate called Beautiful, where he was put every day to beg from those going into the temple courts. There he is. And what's going to happen as they go up to worship? Well, because they have been worshiping, a very interesting thing is going to happen. And I, and I want to underline this. We've talked about the five purposes, fellowship, outreach, service, discipleship. Worship is one of them. And if any of us want to say to ourselves as Christians, I love to worship God, like it just is so great. It's why I come to church here. Well, we need to understand that worship and love are intimately connected. These two, Peter and John, are going up to worship. And in the midst of this, and I'll talk more about that point in the midst of, in just a moment, they're going to be prevented, presented with an opportunity to love. You know what the desire to worship is going to do? It's going to provoke love. Because love comes from God. Take, take a look at 1 John 4, 7. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from where? Comes from God. And only when we connect with God through worship, praising and thanking Him, can we love. Because it's a supernatural love. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Do you see that worship and love, supernatural love, not just natural human love, has to come packaged together with worship. If we are not able to worship God for any reason, we're going to struggle with love. It's just the way it is. And that's why it's so important for us to be here worshiping God because you know what Sunday mornings are? Sunday mornings are your stop at the gas station, the spiritual gas station, where we can fill you back up with the love of God and we can together worship God. And then when we go back out into the week, into our families, into our workplaces, that's going to call for love. It just is. That's how it is. It's why love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself are the two big commandments. Because Jesus knew it's what's going to happen in your life every day. You're going to be presented with these opportunities to love me, God, and to love one another. So first, fill up the tank. And how do you fill up the tank? 
with worship. Will you write this down? Supernatural love is an outflow and an activity of our worship. Supernatural love, not just human love, not just natural love, but the kind of love God is calling for, the kind of love that's not at all natural to us, is an outflow and activity of our worship. Take a look at John 4, 18 and 19. You see, what prevents us loving one another is fear. We're so afraid about so many things. And so what is John the very apostle who's at that gate that we're talking about in Acts, there is no fear in love. Take away fear, you're much better able to love, which is why we worship God and fear Him first, fear Him more, and when we fear Him first and more, the fears dissipate. But perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. We love... See, where does love come from? We love because he first loved us. We're constantly in worship, tying ourselves back to the love of God. All right, that's part one. Let's go to part two. The opportunity to love, have you ever noticed this? Often looks like an intrusion. Why did Peter and John go to the temple at 3 p.m.? I told you, right? They went there to go to church. Have any of you ever been going somewhere and a beggar shows up in your way? Ever been going on or coming off the freeway? And there's that guy with the little sign, I need your help. And now you're struggling with how do I best help him? And, and you're like, oh, why did this have to happen? Why did I choose this entry onto the freeway? This is such an intrusion in my life. Can we, can't the government do something to get these beggars off the streets so that I don't have to be bothered by them so much? But it's not just that kind of intrusion. Have you ever noticed at home? You're trying to get something done. We need to get the dishes washed or the floor swept or the carpets vacuumed. And one of your little children come in and they've got a need. And you're like, oh, really? I'm trying to get stuff done. And here comes this little person intruding into my life. I love to intrude into Julie's life, by the way. It's just so much fun. Yeah. She's trying to get her work done. And I'm like, want to make lunch for me? I'd take a sandwich, a ham sandwich. That's how love is, right? I mean, love appears to be an intrusion. Now, in light of that, look at what happens. Now, a man who was lame from birth was being carried to the temple gate called Beautiful, where he was put every day to beg from those going into the temple courts. See, he was positioned there strategically. When he saw Peter and John about to enter, he asked them for money. And Peter and John go, oh, really? Come on. No, I'm not going to help you because if I help you, you become dependent on my help. And no, 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 no. Ain't happening. 
That's what Peter and John knew. No, it's not. Despite the fact that I'm sure maybe there was a moment of this guy's intruding into my attempt to go to church and worship, what do they do, really? Peter looked straight at him, as did John. Then Peter said to the beggar, look at us. Remember those universal social needs? I see you. I acknowledge you. I accept you. All packed into these three little words. Look at us. So the man gave them his attention because, hey, I've been noticed. I've been acknowledged. I've been seen. If Peter and John had been in Africa for this, they would have said, Ndamubona, Mwabonwa, I see you. So the man gave them his attention, expecting to get something from them. So here's, here's the point I want you to see here. Supernatural love notices needs and acknowledges people. And I'm going to prove this to you. Poor slide guys today. Sorry, slide guys. I'm going to go back now to Luke 18. What about Jesus? So we're, we're talking about Peter and John. Was Jesus ever interrupted, the Son of God? Well, of course not. He had a plan, and he can always make his plan happen. He's God, right? He never got intruded upon, did he? Except for all the time. As Jesus approached Jericho, mind you, he's on his way to the cross here. He's on his way to be crucified. That might be kind of an important thing to get done. A blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. When he heard the crowd going by, he asked what was happening. They told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. He called out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. I need you. Those who led the way, what did they do? You're intruding. You're interrupting. Jesus is important. He's an important man, and he's on his way to do an important thing. So stop shouting. They rebuked him and told him to be quiet. Was he quiet? Nope. But he shouted all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus stopped. Stopped what he was doing, as important as it was, as important as he is. He stopped and ordered the man to be brought to him. When he came near, Jesus asked him, what do you want me to do for you? I see you. I acknowledge you. I see your needs. Lord, I want to see, he replied. Jesus said to him, receive your sight. Your faith has healed you. Isn't that amazing? When we notice needs, now it, again, just like the people on the raft, it's so easy to go about your life on the raft, even a small raft like the one that was floating in the middle of the, the Atlantic Ocean and go, you know what, let's put the blinders on. I don't want to have to see what's going on over there, what that person needs. I don't want to have to say hello to that person this morning because <laughs> they weren't so nice to me last time. Those are such temptations. 
Jesus does not let those kind of thoughts get to him. He's fearless because he loves. And so he takes care of this guy's needs. It's amazing what he does. I want to show you a quote from Henry Nguyen. It's the one with the big picture. Got these guys so confused today. There's the one. It's an incredible mystery of God's love that the more you know how deeply you are loved, we love because he first loves us, as we read earlier, the more you will see how deeply your sisters and your brothers in the human family are loved. And this is what is critical to us acknowledging people and coming to know their needs. Despite the fact that maybe we're, we've been hurt, we've been angered by someone, we still have to step back and, and go, but God still loves that person greatly, died on the cross for them, so how can I somehow, with the Holy Spirit's help, have such a supernatural love that I love because he first loved me, and now I'm ready to notice this person's needs to acknowledge them and to understand I'm going to love these people even though I'm a little hacked off with them. Husbands and wives ever been there? Okay. Julie aggravates me so much when she won't make my ham sandwich. But God still loves her. Crazy. So I'm going to love her. That's how, this is what Nguyen is talking about. And this is such an amazing, and it's called supernatural because it is. You can't do it. I can't do it. None of us can do it. We can't love that way unless filled with the gospel, filled with the Holy Spirit, we get God's help to love supernaturally. You won't normally see this kind of love in the world. You'll only see it in a raft like this of Christians. All right, final point. Love gains traction when we go with what God gives. This is an interesting one. Because you don't, when you can see people and see their needs, guess what challenging thing God sometimes allows to happen? He hasn't given you the resource to help with that need. Ever gotten off the freeway and there's the beggar and you're like, I'd like to give him a buck. Let me check my wallet. Nothing in there. I didn't get any cash recently. What if a family member, a husband, a wife, a child has a need and you're like, I don't have that resource. What am I going to do now? Well, I love this line, and I want you to memorize this line because this is how to love when it appears that you don't have the exact resource within you or in your own hands that this person needs. Then Peter said, I don't have the resource you're asking for. Silver or gold, I do not have. But what I do have, I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. Taking him by the right hand, he helped him up, and instantly the man's feet and ankles became strong. 
Now I'm going to ask you a challenging question. When you acknowledge a person and see a need and come to realize quite honestly and humbly, I do not have that particular thing that this person is looking for and asking for, now what? And you might say, well, I don't, also don't have miracle working power. I, I'm, you know, healing people is not my gift either. I wish I could do what Peter and John did. You know, if I, if I could do miracles, I could do that. That might be your line of thinking at first, but I'm going to challenge you again. Just because you don't have the one resource that the person is looking or asking for, does that mean you have no resources? Absolutely not, because God has given all of us many, a whole cornucopia of gifts. So then you step back and you say, what do I have to give? And, and maybe it'll seem like almost nothing to you. But what if as you stopped off the freeway and there's that beggar and the light is red so you can't turn, you call him over, ask him his name, tell him your name and say, I don't have any money but I'd love to pray with you. What if we did that? Do we have the resource of prayer in our power? What if our child needs something and only the other spouse has it? Empathy, for example. I don't have a lot of empathy. My children met that. So I would say empathy I do not have. I had a little bit of empathy. Not that many. Come on, you people are looking at me so seriously. Like, really, Pastor Jeff? No empathy for your own children? Tiny bit. I'm a typical dad. What I do have, I'll give you. Come here, I'll give you a hug. Quick hug. Now go see your mother. She has empathy. <laughs> what we have been given, we can give away. That's the secret here. Right, and, and so this is what Peter is doing, and it's also what we can do if we will think to step back, get on the balcony, and go, I don't have what they're asking for, but what has God given me that I could potentially use? Look what David says. He, he writes this in Chronicles. It's the Chronicles quote, guys. But who am I and who are my people that we should be able to give as generous as this. This is actually a, an offering for the temple. And Peter, or David rather, answers with a principle that's still true today. Everything comes from you. The money for the temple comes from God. The love that we have in us that needs to be supernatural for the world we live in comes from God. Everything comes from God. And we have given you only what comes from your hand, that's talking to God. When we give anything, it has to come first from the hand God gives it with. We love because he first loved us. Peter can say, I don't have silver or gold, but what I do have, I've been given from God. He gave me a resource to be able to heal you, and he makes him strong. And let me tell you, when you practice love this way supernaturally, when you give what you do have, can I assure you and promise you of something? When you love supernaturally, you're going to truly help people. You might think, well, I prayed. That's not much. 
or will I give away a little hug? That's not much. But I'm telling you, what we're learning from Peter and John here is supernatural healing. Write this down. Supernatural love, rather, will always result in healing and strength. Always. So figure out what it is that God has given you and then give it away. What's so interesting about this, even forgiveness can be a gift like that. One more quote from Henri Nguyen. Henri Nguyen wrote, forgiveness is the name of love practiced among people who love poorly. That's us. When we forgive, we're practicing love even though usually we love poorly because we're sinful. The hard truth is that all people love poorly. We need to forgive and be forgiven every day, every hour increasingly. That is the great work of love among the fellowship of the weak on the raft that is the human family, the Christian human family. What's interesting, I read it to you earlier, and I'm going to wrap up right now, but go back and reread Acts 3, 1 to 10. You know what's interesting? The first point I made was true supernatural love comes from worship. What you'll see is the guy, after he's healed, jumps up, and what's the first thing he begins to do? Worship God. And, and then a crowd gathers, and what's the first thing they begin to do? Worship God. So it's, it creates this beautiful circle. Love comes from our worship of God, and it results in more worship to God. Let's gather together to say the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen.